Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, March 25th, we are studying Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. Judas, one of the twelve, betrays the Lord with a kiss. Yet Jesus goes willingly to his arrest, knowing that the scriptures must be fulfilled. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us Pastor Mark Squire. Pastor Squire serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be with you. As we get started this morning, Pastor Squire, let's talk context. We're in the middle of Mark chapter 14. We've come through a good chunk of the familiar events of Monday, Thursday. What do we need to know about the context of Mark and, and immediately in this chapter and elsewhere in Mark that will help us with the verses we've got today? Yeah, I'm glad you used the word immediately, too, because that's uh, certainly a defining characteristic <laughs> of Mark's gospel. I didn't even do it on um, purpose, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had looked this up um, not too long ago, and uh, Mark uses the word immediately 35 times, which I guess is more than all of the other gospels combined. So mm-hmm. we have this gospel of quick action. Um, things are moving right along. Mark doesn't really like to sit in any one spot for very long. Um, and with that, too, you kind of notice that there are some, the accounts themselves are brief and to the point. So even here, we'll see here in a few minutes that some of the details from this uh, text that we might remember from Matthew or Luke or John um, are missing. So Mark's really hitting what he sees as the highlights here. Um, and then, you know, Jesus, too, throughout Mark tends to be a little more blunt or curt or sometimes even to our, especially our modern years, a little bit rude. Um, you know, we, <laughs> with, uh, you know, political correctness or just with our culture, we we tend to want to be uh, be a certain way and say say things in a certain way. And Jesus, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, which is certainly something we need. Um, and he does so even, even in our text here with the, the mob that comes out to, uh, to arrest him. Um, you know, in the context here, we're in the last, last half of Mark and Mark 11 through 16 really is this big chunk here where it's almost 40% of the gospel, but this all takes place within a week, um, you know, Mark chapter 11, Jesus enters into Jerusalem uh, for his passion and death and resurrection. Um, so that's where we're sitting here. As you mentioned, uh, this comes right after Monday, Thursday. Uh, Jesus has um, instituted the Lord's Supper, Supper, established a new covenant in his blood, which he's about to shed um, on the cross. And uh, with that, we see some of the important themes that come up uh, during this week, and one of the big ones is the theme of judgment. Um, right at the beginning of the week, we have this very strange account where uh, Jesus curses a fig tree. Um, and it's it's very strange in part, well, mostly because uh, Mark tells us very plainly in verse 13 that uh, Jesus was looking for figs, but it wasn't the season for figs. So, um, 
you almost wonder, you know, you want to say that poor fig tree was just doing its job and uh, yet Jesus cursed it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it seems to fit into this larger uh, movement where Jesus is coming uh, in his kingdom and bringing, bringing with him judgment. So right after that, he cleanses the temple. Mark tells us that uh, those who were buying and selling, uh, he drove them out. Uh, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And uh, even more, verse 16, he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So you have this picture of Jesus who's just, um, you know, maybe going berserk, we might want to say. He's, he's spreading himself out as much as possible to keep people from, from buying and selling because he said that it should be a house of prayer, but that they've made it a den of robbers. Um, he's also telling parables. So he continues to teach as he's been doing throughout his own ministry. But here in Mark in chapter 12, it's a parable specifically against the leaders, which um, we'll get to the second theme here in a second, uh, this theme of confrontation. But um, Jesus tells this parable about the tenants and, and uh, you know, when the, the tenants who mistreat uh, the messengers of the vineyard owner, and eventually the, the owner sends his son, and they kill the son. And, you know, so what will, what will the owner do? He will come and destroy the tenant and give the vineyard to others. Um, mm-hmm. And we see Jesus say plainly in verse 40 of chapter 12, uh, he's warning his disciples against the scribes, and he says that these scribes will receive a greater condemnation. Uh, so certainly the leaders are in Jesus' view here. He's come to Jerusalem, and this is where the Sanhedrin is. This is where really the, the center of uh, the Jewish universe is. And, uh, but lest the people think that they're, uh, they're without judgment as well, um, most of chapter 13, Jesus is telling about the signs of the end, and we kind of weave back and forth between uh, what we might call the end times, the end of history, and uh, what we see fulfilled in the year 70, where uh, the Romans come and destroy the temple and they, they burn a lot of Jerusalem. And so um, the people are, are scattered. You have this uh, diaspora of, of Jews from Jerusalem that get sent out. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, lot of judgment going on mm-hmm. here in, in chapters 11 through 16. What, what strikes me there about all the all the judgment that is very prevalent there in those opening chapters of Holy Week, Mark 11 through 13, is that the the picture of Jesus there, he's, he's very active. You know, he, he gives that, there's that back and forth that happens at, in mostly in chapter 12 of sort of one person after another comes at Jesus, throws some question at him that they think is going to get him, and he, he dodges them masterfully and yet continues to teach. And, and ultimately, all of them end up silenced and now there's almost this starting really with this text there's there's almost a reversal of roles it seems where where before jesus had been you know silencing his opponents now it seems that he's going to be silenced that may be getting a little bit farther than our text for today but it's it's just striking the the reversal of roles that i mean at least from a human perspective that you see between those earlier chapters and now where we're going beginning with this text today and, and yet to to realize in all of that that throughout this, Jesus is the one who who remains in control, who is directing events, who is following the lead of his his Father's will, ultimately to win the salvation of of sinners. 
Absolutely. No, that's that's exactly right. And I think uh, the way that you put that, that Jesus is in control, um, certainly not here in Mark, but in John, uh, you see this very clearly that, you know, Jesus, nobody takes Jesus' life from him, yeah. that he gives him, gives it up willingly. And, um, you know, everything you said, too, really, it's a good segue to another theme that you see here, which is confrontation. And uh, you're right that in these first um, first chapters of Holy Week, especially, Jesus is silencing his opponents. And the, the fact that he has opponents is, is important, as we see, so we're going to see in our text uh, for today that um, eventually they realizing that they can't um, overcome him with with words or trying to gain the favor of the people are finally going to turn to to force and violence. Um, but even in the even in the beginning, we see the confrontation right away in in Mark's gospel. Jesus is confronted with uh, with the devil. He's tempted in the wilderness, and then one of his first miracles in Mark two is when he and well Mark also Mark chapter one is that uh, he casts out a demon, and the demon knows who he is, and yet Jesus even has power over over the demon. Um, so it shouldn't be any surprise then that, that Jesus is facing confrontation, and we see, as it were, the uh, the devil's minions in, in the religious leaders of the day who are opposed to Jesus already in chapter 2 when uh, Jesus speaks forgiveness to a man and... Um, and the, the leaders wonder, who, who is this that can even forgive sins? Um, so by chapter 11, then, it, it really is no surprise that the chief priests and the scribes are seeking to destroy him. Uh, it's, it's no uh, surprise that the chief priests and scribes and elders in uh, chapter 11, verses 27 through 33, are questioning his authority. They're trying to uh, trap him. Uh, in his words. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees come in chapter 12, each with their own questions. And, and like you said, he, he silences them every time. Uh, but when we get here to our text, it is the beginning of this reversal. And, and Jesus willingly uh, stops, as it were, pushing and allows them to do uh, what has been destined for them to do. That is to arrest him, mistreat him, and put him on the cross. Yeah, I mean, it, it, just thinking about the the silence and who's who's quiet, who's not. It, just in a, if you have a red letter Bible, as you go from the text we've got today on through the rest of the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice that quite literally the words, Jesus' words that are coming from his mouth, they they start to drop away. You just don't see as many of them as he goes. Was Isaiah silently as a lamb goes to the slaughter? So Jesus goes silently, willingly to his death. In terms of the the immediate context of Monday, Thursday, and the interaction that we've seen between Jesus and his disciples, that's been pretty key so far in Mark fourteen. It's going to start to fade into the background a little bit. What what in that chapter will help us as we consider the events that we've got in today's text? Yeah, Jesus um, is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And um, so Jesus is surrounded by really his core group of followers. So certainly the 12, um, but also we presume there were some others as well. And Jesus has uh, continued to to teach them very intimately. So you, know, you mentioned Monday, Thursday, of course, Jesus uh, in celebrating the Passover with his disciples uh, says these strange words about uh, eating uh, his body and drinking his blood. Um, but then 
after he does this, it starts to take this really um, foreboding turn. Now, we, of course, reading this know what happens, but um, certainly at the time to go from celebrating the Passover and maybe being confused at the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus immediately foretells Peter's denial. Um, so it seems that Peter, who is, is often singled out and you know, and as far as we know, uh, Mark, who wrote this, was probably uh, probably listening to Peter preach and, and writing some of this down from Peter's uh, own storytelling. Uh, Peter's often singled out, and yet as, as one of the, the very inner core of Jesus' disciples, even he himself is going to deny Jesus. Um, so we have this kind of theme of the disciples' failure uh, as they as they're coming into the city, we see them marveling at still at what is big and beautiful in chapter 13, when they're looking at the temple. Uh, they still have these grandiose ideas of, of what Jesus is going to do, and even who Jesus is, uh, and what he's supposed to do as the Messiah. Uh, so when, with this turn, then, with Peter's going to deny Jesus, we see at the, um, near the beginning of chapter 14 that Judas agrees to betray Jesus which again is no surprise if we've been reading through because it's mentioned in all the Gospels before this that whenever the disciples are named, well, this is Judas Iscariot, who would betray Jesus? Um, but certainly with, with everything that Jesus has done and said, um, it's, it really is, it's, it's disheartening. It's, it's heart-wrenching really to see uh, what happens with Judas uh, and then certainly with Peter as well, denying Jesus and, and weeping bitterly afterwards. Um, and then even in the garden too, Garden of Gethsemane, where, where Jesus is praying, um, he comes back several times and, and Peter and the disciples are asleep and he's, he's just livid because they can't stay awake for, for one hour you know, during this important time. Um, so everything seems really to be from a worldly perspective, breaking down. Um, and everybody's everybody's about to leave Jesus alone. So not only, like you said, is Jesus silenced, um, but he's he's alone. So he's he's in a very difficult spot. Yeah, I mean, so that brings us up to the text for today. They had been in the Garden of Gethsemane. They are still in the Garden of Gethsemane. Excuse me. Jesus has said, "Look, my betrayer's here," and that's where we pick up with our text today. We're in Mark 14, beginning at verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. 
That is the text for today. That's Mark 14, verses 43 through 52. Pastor Squire, we get that that favorite word of Mark's immediately there at the beginning of the text. It's been a little while since we've seen it, actually. I think in, in Mark's gospel, so many of those occurrences of the word immediately show up in the first part, and they they tend to fall away here later in, in Holy Week. But here it shows up in this text a couple of times, actually. And and Mark reminds us uh, who this betrayer is. Jesus had just said, my betrayer is at hand. Here Mark reminds us that that is Judas. Uh, tell us a little bit about these opening verses of our text. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's good that you mentioned that because I had, I had said earlier that there were 35 instances of immediately in Mark's gospel. And you're right. We we haven't seen it since uh, eleven verse three wow. um, that he was going to send the the donkey back immediately. Um, so we've gone you know almost four chapters now without it, and then all of a sudden we get it twice. Uh, once here in our text, and then once later after the rooster crows the second time. So uh, things are picking back up. It's almost as if the events um, of Holy Week are are sort of a the calm before the storm, maybe, if I can say it that way. Um, and then when when this mob shows up, things pick up again, and Jesus is well on his way to his passion and death. Um, so, yeah, immediately, that, you know, we see that right away then. And uh, Judas came, and as you mentioned, uh, verse 42, Jesus reminds his disciples uh, who Jesus, or who Judas, I should say, has become. He's the betrayer. Um, and you know, he has, (laughs) I don't know quite what to do with this. I don't know if this is just a detail or, you know, Mark has here, Judas came one of the 12 and now that's obvious. If you've been reading this or or know the story, Judas, of course, is one of the 12. And so I I looked this up a little bit and, and wonder, well, was there another Judas who was with them? Um, or I think maybe what I kind of lean towards is that, uh, this is sort of the, a reminder of the depth of his betrayal. Um, so back in uh, verse 20 of chapter 14, when Jesus was about to institute the Lord's Supper, he said, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Um, so betrayal is always hard, but certainly the closer the person is to you, um, the deeper the betrayal and I think that's probably part of what Mark's getting at here by, by labeling Judas as one of the 12. Mm. That, that this, is, this is a big turn. This is a big get for the Pharisees and Sadducees. They've got one of his closest associates, one of his apostles. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think you're right, because the, as you pointed out, that's the way that Jesus identifies Judas previously prior to the giving of the of the Lord's Supper that you know he's it, it, he doesn't actually identify Judas by name and Mark doesn't actually record that conversation I think I don't remember which gospel writer it is that records that brief interaction between Jesus and Judas at that moment where they're all asking is it I and and Judas kind of there's a, a conversation between Jesus and Judas at that moment that gets singled out Mark doesn't actually record that and and here now when he does name Judas in in verse 43 of this chapter again he he identifies him more so as one of the 12, which I, I think you're right, that it's it's a matter of this is how close the betrayal actually was. Remember that guy who was eating with Jesus just a couple hours before? Now he's here yeah. for an entirely different different purpose. 
right? Yeah, it's you know when when you watch a movie or read a book, there's uh, if if there's a big you know kind of reveal or, or turn in the plot, this would this would kind of be it for for certainly the disciples. Mm. Um, you know, you see G, or you see Judas leave earlier, uh, but to see him come back, especially with a mob behind him with uh, uh, swords and clubs. Uh, this is this is a big deal, and it's you know for the for the leaders who have been looking for a chance to betray, uh, to arrest him, to um, to kill him, really destroy him. Uh, this this is the way that they were able to do it. Judas was the one, and I think too you see here too that Judas is not simply a pawn. That um, he hasn't been manipulated into this, but that he's he's complicit. Um, he is the betrayer. And in fact, too, we saw that with uh, in verse 44 that he had given them a sign. So he was certainly a um, an integral part of this. Hmm. And uh, we start to see too some of the explicit connections to some prophecies and words in the Old Testament. And here, with the word betrayer, um, we think of Isaiah 24:16. Uh, where it says, from the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed, and with betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Uh, so you can really hear in that the the, the visceral cry of Jesus, who, <laughs> you know, here's my betrayer, here he comes, He's here's the traitor. And Jesus knows what's going to happen. I mean, he's been, uh, he said in the previous verses that he was greatly distressed and troubled. He was very sorrowful, even unto death. Um, this is this is bad news, at least as far as the flesh goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what about this, this crowd that comes with him? Judas comes, he's got a, a crowd with swords and clubs, and they are said to be from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Right, yeah, I think it's interesting to me that uh, Mark lists all three groups here, and I think it's a sign that the leaders are united against Jesus, which, um, you know, the enemy the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, even though the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as two examples, were, were not really happy with each other um, for any uh, various reasons, the Pharisees believed in angels in the resurrection, the Sadducees did not. Pharisees accepted the whole of the Old Testament, the Sadducees only the Torah. Um, so, you know, Paul even uses this to his advantage when he's arrested. You know, he says, well, I'm on trial for the re- because I believe in the resurrection of the dead, and all of a sudden he's got half of the Sanhedrin on his side because the Pharisees say, oh, well, he's one of our guys. He's fine. Let's let him go. Um, but here, the, everyone is united against Jesus. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, they... They haven't been able to to overcome his his argumentation or with words or finding favor with the people, and so now the chief priests and scribes and elders bring this this group, this crowd along, and they have swords and clubs, so they've turned to to violence and force. And um, again, you look back in the Old Testament, and maybe maybe surprisingly to some, we find something in the Psalms. Now, um, usually when we think of prophecy, we think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, some of these these guys, uh, you know, even Micah, uh, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you know, some of these specific details. But really, 
we start to see here especially that Jesus is fulfilling a lot of the Psalms. And one Psalm that comes up here already in verse 43 is Psalm 57, verse 4. Uh, and it says, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Um, again, Jesus is in a, a dangerous spot. He knows what's about to happen. Uh, and this crowd has come uh, really as a show of force. Um, and as almost, I mean, you say maybe a victory lap, you know, we finally got Judas and now we know where you are and we got a quiet place to arrest you and no one's, no one's going to know about it till it's too late. Yeah, the, I mean the again the just the the way the scene has has shifted things the tables seem to have turned and and yet as you said Jesus in in fulfilling the psalms here I think that's that's going to be a, a key point particularly as the the text progresses and Jesus is going to even bring that up let the scriptures be fulfilled even in in a text that you know is so so short so so brief in typical mark and fashion and yet throughout it we're going to see how Jesus is in fact fulfilling things that the Old Testament was saying about him, talking about this very moment. And we'll pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO. Have Pastor Mark Squire looking at Mark chapter 14 with us. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, March 25th. We're studying Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. We have Pastor Mark Squire with us. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, prior to the break, we were looking at the first couple verses of the text, seeing how even in just very simple actions, Jesus is fulfilling what the Old Testament says. And you pointed us specifically to the Psalms, which I think is a fantastic thing, because so often, when, as you pointed out, when we think of the things Jesus fulfills, we think of verses that very specifically talk about things that are going to happen. So a verse like, say, Isaiah seven fourteen, where the prophet says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. Those, those types of verses were like, oh, yeah, that's definitely talking about Jesus. But then you start to read the Psalms, and, and you just see how it's, it's dripping with words that are really about Jesus. And, and we're going to continue to see that in the text. We left off about in the middle of verse 44 and then into verse 45. The way that Judas has agreed to betray Jesus is with a kiss. Now, tell us a little bit about that as a sign, just in, in general, of what Judas is doing, but also how that, too, comes from the Old Testament. Yeah, there's a, a tragic irony here, and um, the, the word itself, you know, kiss, kiss is a kind of a general word in our language. It can, you know, you can kiss a child, you can kiss your wife, um, and yet the, the word here specifically seems to mean 
uh, a kiss that uh, assumes familiarity and intimacy. And of course, Judas is one of the 12 would be very familiar with Jesus and part of that intimate, you know, core group of the 12. And, and yet with this kiss, he is betraying the Lord of life. Um, so it, it's, it's hard because in Mark's gospel, at least, this is the last mention of Judas. So in other gospels, of course, we have uh, Judas regret. So in Matthew, for example, he in guilt returns the coins and then in his despair because the, the religious leaders don't want to offer him any sort of forgiveness or reconciliation, he goes off and, and hangs himself. Uh, but here in Mark, this is the last mention of Judas, and it's it's certainly not a good one. He He's betraying the Lord with this, I don't even know what to call it, but I mean, you want to talk about how much of a, almost like a knife twist this is, that Judas comes close to Jesus and kisses him, and yet is doing so not as a greeting, but as a sign for his betrayal. Um, one of the, the points of irony comes here in uh, from Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 is a, a fairly familiar psalm because it's, um, it's often quoted in the New Testament. And we usually hear verse 7, so the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, But it's at the end, in verse 12, um, after the psalmist says, serve uh, Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling, he says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Uh, And I just find a, a, a sad irony here. That Judas is doing, <laughs> doing the action of what the psalmist says, kissing the son, and yet in a in a totally contrary and sinful way. Mm. Um, you know, woe it, woe to the man who betrays the Lord. It would have been better for him not to be born. Mm. Um, so we see the irony there, and and too with what I've been saying, kind of about the closeness of Judas as one of the twelve. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm fifty-five. This is David writing, uh, and you can't help but to think of the Lord himself saying these words. So verses 12 and 13, for example, uh, it says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. Uh, and then continuing in verse 20, he says, My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Um, so certainly appropriate words and imagery for Mark chapter 14. Uh, this What's supposed to be an intimate kiss is really just a, a ploy um, just like smooth speeches when, when you're taking someone down. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's the tragic irony here. Yeah. I mean, just looking at those two Psalms that you, you brought up, I, there's, I think there's, there's even more too, that we could say like, so in Psalm two, you know, kiss the sun, Judas does that. But then Psalm two continues, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. That, that stands right. in, in stark contrast to what actually happens here. You know, Jesus does not have his anger quickly kindled at this moment. And again, particularly thinking about 
the the way Holy Week had been going up until you know chapter fourteen, really, and how Jesus, you know, he flipped over the tables in the temple, and he's been silencing his enemies, and and here the son is kissed, but rather than letting his anger and wrath be quickly kindled, instead the exact opposite happens, where the anger and wrath of God, you know, the cup of suffering, Jesus is going to take that and drink from it. And and then I I mean I think that that connects then with with what's there. I mean this is just amazing when you start looking at the Psalms like this. So Psalm fifty five that you brought up in verses twenty and twenty one, which you read about you know the companion who stretched out his hand with that smooth as butter speech. Right after that, the psalmist says, "Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you," which is ultimately what Jesus ends up doing at this moment. I mean it's just to to see how how those things happen in the Psalms, and then Jesus comes along and he's he's doing those things. It's just a I mean, I'm, I don't know that there's there's much more to, to say. You're welcome to, to respond to that. But it's like, for me, it's just an amazing thing to to read the Psalms in the light of what's here, especially during Holy Week, and see how Jesus is, in fact, fulfilling the scriptures throughout. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I think I think that's a good point. And I, I guess the only, the one thing I would say about, about that is that um, Jesus becomes, for us, the main point of Jesus coming, obviously, is not that he comes as an example for us, but certainly uh, as Christians, we follow in our Lord's path. And to see that he is being betrayed and yet does goes into this willingly does not, uh, unlike Peter and the disciples who, who we see here actually turn to violence, um, you know, Jesus, Jesus does not allow anger to even enter in. He just says, Later in verse 49, let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is why he came. Um, so certainly our connection with with our Lord means that if, God forbid, we ever find ourselves in a situation where we're being betrayed, you know, and which leads to our death, um, that we would, uh, as you mentioned from verse 22 of Psalm 55, cast our burdens on the Lord, just like Jesus did. Mm. Now, one more thing to pick up maybe from Judas. He addresses Jesus. Not only does he kiss Jesus, but he actually addresses him as rabbi, as opposed to say something. Is there some significance to the way G- Judas addresses Jesus? I think so. You know, in Mark's gospel, the the term rabbi doesn't seem to be quite as as meaningful maybe as in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, um, you know, it's pointed out that that usually when somebody calls Jesus rabbi, they're misunderstanding who he is. Um, in Mark's gospel, it seems to be, I think maybe part of this irony that you know, rabbi literally means uh, my great one, which later comes to mean sort of a, a admired teacher. And so sometimes you'll see uh, rabbi, which means teacher, but literally means kind of this my great one. And, and yet here Judas comes and calls Jesus this and uh, but is not doing so really in any sort of um, uh, manner of praise or worship, but again, to to betray Jesus. So I think this kind of adds to that knife twist. Uh, yeah, he's a rabbi, um, and yet here I've come to to turn the rabbi over. Now, as you said, Judas really fades into the background at this point, and, and you just don't hear any more about him in Mark's gospel. The scene starts to move in a... A rather, uh, I think what we would expect, a direction we would expect, there's been this this moment in time sort of you, you kind of freeze there with Judas kissing 
Jesus addressing him as rabbi, the betrayals happen and then things start to happen. Remember, there's this big crowd with swords and clubs and, and Jesus is not by himself. His, his 12 are with him. One side, the, the side that's come to arrest, takes Jesus, they seize him. And then Mark tells us that, that one of those who is there, they took the sword and struck a servant of the high priest on the ear. It, it, it seems at this moment, and of course we know how it's going to go, but it seems things, things could escalate quickly, it sounds like. Absolutely. I think um, really everything gets out of control. It's, it's almost as if that kiss kind of opens up Pandora's box in a way, because um, as you said in verse 46, the crowd, uh, the mob lays their hands on, on Jesus and seizes him. And um, Peter, as maybe any good, good friend would try to do, tries to protect Jesus. Now here in Mark, we don't have it mentioned who it is. Uh, it just says one of those who stood by, and this is part of that kind of uh, maybe lacking of details that Mark has or the briefness. Um, just as one of those who were standing there drew his sword and struck the servant who we know from uh, John, I think, is, is named Malchus. And yet we don't even have Jesus healing the, <laughs> the servant here. Everything's just kind of chaos. Um, the crowd grabs Jesus, uh, one of his disciples strikes the high priest with the sword. And at this point, like you said, it just seems like everything's about to spiral out of control. It's going to escalate. Um, and, and yet again, with his word, Jesus kind of brings order to it. Mm. Um, but, and not by saying like he did in the storm, you know, peace be still, but almost with the sarcasm um, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Uh, basically, like, what are you doing? Um, why, why would you come like this? Uh, and he says, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. So in other words, you've had lots of opportunities, but Jesus really is highlighting here the hypocrisy of the leaders, um, the underhandedness and the craftiness of them that they're doing this under the cover of night. Uh, and with a show of force, um, because if Jesus really were um, a robber or a crook, or if Jesus had done something wrong, they had every opportunity to arrest him. But he's revealing really what's deep in their hearts, that they're opposed to the Son of God, and they're really only set out to do evil. Um, so yeah, he's revealing their outlandishness. This is ridiculous. And yet... Uh, the end of verse 49, let the scriptures be fulfilled, uh, which really, I mean, that's part of what we've been talking about together here today. We've, we're seeing the scriptures fulfilled. We've seen it in Psalm 2. We've seen it in Psalm 55. Um, even Psalm 71, uh, which we haven't looked at yet, but there's a couple of verses there just about people pursuing and seizing um uh, the psalmist. So my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him, pursue and seize him for there's none to deliver him. In other words, you know, we, this is our opportunity. Uh, so let's do it. We're going to, we're going to seize him and we're going to do with him what we want. Yeah. I mean, those, those words from Jesus there at the end, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Then, I mean, really do provide a lens with which to see the really, I mean, I think you can go back through the whole Gospel of Mark and see that as the lens, but particularly from this moment moving forward through the rest of the Passion into Jesus' death and ultimately the resurrection, that the, let the Scripture be fulfilled. I think, too, that that, that 
that comment from Jesus also gives insight into the way that he, you know, he's left, the, or he's leaving the Garden of Gethsemane at this point now. He's, he's about to, to leave to his trial. And just that previous text where he's praying in great sorrow and distress and trouble, you know, let this cup pass, but not what I will, but what you will, dear Father, is, is his prayer. I think now with, with this these words from Jesus, let the scriptures be fulfilled. You see how he's he's been strengthened through that prayer to face what what now is going to be a very difficult several hours for Jesus going forward, that the, the Father has, in fact, answered Jesus' prayer that his will is for Jesus to go through with this, to drink the cup of God's wrath, according to the scriptures, in order to win salvation for sinners. Right. Yeah, I think you're right that when we think about where where we might be able to find strength, certainly we would ask that we should ask the question, where has Jesus found strength? And that's through God's word. And so it, it shouldn't be surprising that Jesus has really uh, come to terms with is not maybe the best way to say it, but certainly is at peace with what is about to happen, even though it is troubling, even though he is sorrowful, um, let it, let it happen. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Um, which we confess every week. Um, it, well, as you know, when we're confessing the Nicene Creed, more than once we say, according to the scriptures. Um, particularly, too, it always strikes me when we say, and, and, and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I mean, the Old Testament speaks about Jesus' resurrection just as, uh, as it speaks about his passion and death. So we don't you know, we can go to Isaiah 52 and 53. We can go to Psalm 22 with Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or that they're casting lots for his garment or they're, they're offering him, um, you know, sour wine. But um, even his resurrection too. And that's where I think where Jesus finds hope. He knows he's been, he's been uh, prophesying it all along several times to his disciples that not only will the son of man be arrested and mocked and, and, crucified and killed, but on the third day be raised. Uh, so it, it's, uh, it's interesting then, in, at the end of Luke, when Jesus is on the road with uh, the disciples to Emmaus, um, when, he's ta- when he's opening their eyes to what the scriptures have to say about the Christ, about you know, the great prophet who was to come, he specifically mentions the Psalms. So uh, verse 44 of Luke 24 uh, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Well, this isn't Emmaus anymore, but this is Jesus uh, with his disciples. But that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And that, that always strikes me that um, the Psalms are just rich in, in the theology of who Jesus is and why he's come and certainly would be a source for him of, of comfort knowing that God will bring him through this. Verse 50 of our text is quite short, and it shouldn't be entirely unexpected because of what Jesus has said. They all left him and fled. This is what Jesus has said would happen, and that too is part of fulfilling the scriptures. Absolutely, yeah, and it's it's sad, obviously, um, that <laughs> mm. Jesus is, is not only going to be facing this hour, which has now come, but he's going to be doing it alone, at least without his disciples. Um, we see in Zechariah, for example, Zechariah 13, 
um, or seven, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares Yahweh of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Um, so again, it's it's no surprise then to us that that they scattered. Uh, this is what's been written, and, and certainly to, as human beings, uh, in the face of such danger, it's natural for us to, you know, we hear all the time about fight or flight response. One of them tried to fight, it didn't work, and so what's the other option? Well, we're going to flee. Mm. And Psalm 38, um, David again writes this, and again, you can't help but to, but to hear these words coming out of the mouth of our Lord as well. Verse 11, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. Uh, Psalm 88, uh, you have caused my companions to shun me. This is verse 8. Uh, you have made me a horror to them. I am shut so that I cannot escape. And then again, verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Or another way to translate that, if you look at the footnote, is uh, darkness has become my only companion, uh, which is a very... Uh, rich image, um, and again, of the tragedy going on here for Jesus. This has all been foretold, and it, it was bound to happen uh, even as, as sad as it is to, to listen to and, and you know, uh, picture in your own mind. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, this matter of Jesus being forsaken now by his disciples, you know, there's, there's still one loose thread when it comes to Jesus disciples that Mark will pick up coming up soon with, with Peter's denial of Jesus again, something else that Jesus has foretold, but, but starting here, you do start to see Jesus gradually being left alone at until it really climaxes on the cross where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that, that journey now starts here Again, all in fulfillment of the scriptures, and I mean, even those words of Jesus from the cross, that's from Psalm 22. So, I mean, he's, right. he is doing this all along in his, in his passion. Now, the, the text that we've got today closes with a detail that Mark is actually the only one to include. For all of those moments where, where Mark is going through a text rather quickly and maybe skipping over some details that other gospel writers include, he's got plenty of moments where he adds some detail that nobody else gives. And this is one of them, and perhaps one of the more memorable ones. So after Jesus has been arrested, all of the disciples have left Jesus and fled. Mark tells us about a young man who apparently also was following Jesus. The only clothes he was wearing was a linen cloth. This crowd tried to seize this young man, but he got away by leaving the linen cloth and running away naked. And that's that's the detail. There's nothing else given. It doesn't come up again later in the text, it seems. Mark gives it to us here. There's been many things said over the history of, of the church. Pastor Squire, what do you got for us on these verses? Yeah, it's... Um... It's a short little snippet, and it, it's not only interesting and specific, but it's certainly embarrassing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't know who this guy is. Uh, he's, he's anonymous. He's not named. And, but like you said, since it is specific to Mark, uh, the, the history of it or the, the understanding of it is that it was probably Mark himself. Um, which is entirely possible. Mark was not one of the 12, you know, of the four gospel writers, Mark and Luke were not one of the, uh, of the 12, just Matthew and John were. And so it, 
either Mark talked to someone, this guy who was there, or he himself was was the young man who followed him. Um, but certainly it is interesting that you say this progression of Jesus being left alone. There was at least one one guy who followed him, uh, but apparently was not secretive enough and was caught. And I think this kind of adds to the haste of the story, because we had the immediately in, in verse 43 that uh, maybe maybe this guy uh, saw that there was something going on, and so in his haste just threw on this outer robe to go see. And um, when he got caught, they grabbed his his um, his cloth, and instead of being arrested, he he let them take it and ran, ran away naked, which um, I don't, doesn't really offer any any comic relief here. That that wouldn't be quite appropriate to say, but certainly an embarrassing detail. Mm-hmm. But but maybe maybe theologically important too. Uh, you know, if we think about maybe what the spiritual meaning of something like this might be. Um, certainly you might think of a story like, like Joseph, um, who, you know, Potiphar's wife was trying to constantly, uh, get him to, to sleep with her and no, no, this wouldn't be right. And finally she grabs him by, by his clothes, clothes and, and he has to escape quickly. But I think probably even more, we, we think maybe all the way back to Genesis three, because it's the first time that then anybody even realizes that they're naked. And this nakedness, of course, is not, it's not the fact of being naked that's important, but it's the shame that comes along with it. Um, so, of course, when uh, when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, their eyes are both open and they knew that they were naked, so they had to cover themselves. And and it makes you wonder here if, if we have this almost callback to the original sin and and the shame that comes along with that, and how much now it's been heightened that not only within one generation do we have Cain killing Abel, for example, in Genesis 4, but it's actually gotten to the point where God's own son has come into the flesh to save sinners, and they've seized him, and they've arrested him, and there is, uh, <laughs> there is nothing to cover that shame. It is being... Um, and it's just being bared. Uh, you, you can't not see it uh, when you're reading this and when you're hearing it. That this is God's son, his sinless son, who is now being seized and will be mocked and crucified. And and that's that's the shame here. Hmm. Pastor Squire, with about four minutes here, as we reflect on these verses from Mark 14, what Help us to wrap things up, summarize for us, point us, point us to what this text is saying about us, about Jesus, and, and who he is for us. Yeah, I think it's important when we look at a text not to jump uh, too quickly into, well, how can I fit into this? So like exactly like what you said, what does this text say about Jesus? And I think maybe that's the first question we should be asking, you know, especially here, you know, we don't want to say, well, are we one of the disciples? Are we one of the crowd? I'm not, I'm not sure that's quite always the most helpful question. You know, primarily here, this is saying something about Jesus. So as, as you've already said, Pastor Apple, that Jesus has come to save sinners and, and he's willing to, to go through whatever it takes to do that. Um, Jesus is the son of God, Yahweh himself in the flesh. And, He's fighting for us, and he's doing it alone. So this progression to Jesus being alone, um, you think of, for example, Isaiah 63, verse 5. I looked, and there was not a helper, and my right arm did 
of the saving for me. Um, this is this is the right arm, the, the might of God in the the foolish scandal of Jesus on the cross. Um, but here, Jesus, like you mentioned earlier, goes forth willingly. We think of, for example, Paul Gerhardt's hymn, uh, Lamb Goes on Complaining Forth, number 438 on Lutheran Service Book. Um, we see that happening here. And of course, the comfort for Jesus and for us is that in the end, uh, God raises Jesus from the dead. And, you know, to complete Psalm 2, puts all of his enemies under his feet. Um, and we see this throughout the New Testament, Mark 12, Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 15, Hebrews 1. This is an important psalm, and this is the beginning of it. Uh, the, the enemies of Jesus seem to have the upper hand, and yet uh, God will vindicate Jesus and then also vindicate his people. Uh, so our connection to Jesus then comes with that, that vindication. Uh, now, as far as us, um, we see here what happens when people are, are, are trying to follow Jesus on their own apart from the Holy Spirit. So uh, Dr. Veltz, in his commentary, mentions that apart from the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, assaults against God's reign in Jesus are basically impossible to withstand. So they all flee. Um, it's only because of the resurrection of Jesus and his uh, subsequent giving of the Spirit in John uh, 20 and Acts chapter 2 that even we as Christians are able to withstand the assaults of the devil and able to stand firm under trial like Paul and like James will, will both write. Um, only Jesus was able to resist temptation. Only Jesus was able to stand in our stead. Only Jesus was able to go willingly to his death. Uh, to to resist temptation, uh, unlike the people of Israel who failed for 40 years, unlike us who fail every day. Um, Jesus gives us his spirit so that as we're wandering in the wilderness of this world, you know, we can stand firm in the power of the spirit and, and with his word. Pastor Mark Squire is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. Pastor Squire, thanks for being our guest today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 14 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.